Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. That's too dramatic to come in on, but I'm going to leave it. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to all new, all different Uncanny X's for podcasts, the show where we take a look at the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise as it continues its 1980s mutant madness dominance of the market. However, today is a special day. Like all Thursdays, we have been taking a look at Jonathan Hickman's powerful revitalization of the X-Men comic franchise. I'm your host, Nico. I'm Kyle. I'm Dylan. And I'm Jonah. And unlike some X-Men, I hope you survive the experience. Yeah, this was a bloodbath. I mean, I'm talking Cassie Nova having a bad day bloodbath. This was amazing! So, okay, before we can talk about anything else, we're of course talking today about House of X 3 and 4 by Jonathan Hickman, and as Marvel is so proud to call him, Pepe Larraz, one of their young guns. This young gun moniker, they have been using this, like, on and off since, like, 2005 to describe any new batch of artists they're working with, and sometimes they call the writers the architects, but title or no title, Pepe Larraz's work has grown so significantly in the last few years, it's been incredible to see his work on this title. So, alright, guys, let's see. What have we already had? We've had House of X 1, Powers of 10 1, House of X 2, Powers of 10 2 and 3, and now we have House of X 3 and 4. This this whole two series that are one thing is getting a little hard to keep track of. Just a bit. And like, not even in a bad way. It's so fun. Because it's not even like there's so many titles. I'm not like trying to amalgamate a crossover here, but this is some, and oh my god, I don't know how some people are reading just House of X. At one point, my comic shop said people were just picking up House of X, and I'm like, oh, so they only want the one heart ventricle, I guess. How does that even make sense? This is How does, so entwined. Right? It is crazy entwined. And it has been fantastic. Whether it's House of X number one's initial reveal that the X-Men now view Krakoa as some sort of Gaian savior life force, or... It's Powers of Ten number one, taking us to the, well, Powers of Ten in mutant history, seeing the X-Men Human Mutant War at what we assume is like kind of some great juncture end of time thing, but no, lo and behold, there's a creepy little blue dude, 900 years after that, just chilling. House of X number two changed X-Men forever with six little letters, Moira X. This was one of the greatest reveals in X-Men history. And beautifully executed with incredible precision by John Hickman. From there, we return to the future and the human mutant robot war. And I guess it's human mutant machine war. I guess they're really clear that they're machines. They're not calling them robots. So I guess I'm being really not nice here. Truly, you know, Jonathan Hickman is a guy who loves the specificity of his language. Jonathan Hickman's strength lies in his very unique expression. So I would hate to take that from him. And in that future, we saw a brilliant battle between a very nurturing, loving apocalypse, his horsemen, and a number of the Chimeran clone mutants versus Karima, Krimisha Pandar, the Omega Sentinel from our timeline in the future, seemingly very anti-mutant, and Nimrod. Nimrod's had such a weird up-and-down history, and the character's been reimagined so many times, and this is far and away my favorite version. But 
we got a really cool action sequence in the future in Powers 2 and 3. And Hickman, again, really understanding how to form a parallel idea, gave us a beautiful action sequence in these two issues. Now, I can't wait to jump in and get everybody's opinion, but I want to know where everybody's mind was at before they went into these two. Kyle, you'd taken a bit of a sabbatical and then came back because you'd started on the show and, you know, you've been jumping around a little bit, but you've been reading continuity now for, I want to say, two or three solid years and House of X has absolutely thrown everything on its head. Going into this, this two-part action-adventure sequence, where's your head at? Oh, boy. I had a lot of hopes, but at the same time, I was worried about the ramifications of what could happen with the events that were going to happen in these issues. I love that you said that, that you brought up the ramifications, because I know that you and I both read the very recent 22 or so issue Uncanny X-Men run, which really, at its core, was much closer to a run of X-Force. But how does that feel different? You know, you're afraid of the ramifications here, but it's as if what happened in Uncanny doesn't really connect with this. Uncanny felt like there was no hope, while this seems like there's still a chance for these mutants. And yeah, there's it's it's there's so much more on the line here. Dylan, you have read the great annals of mutant history, and you have, I mean, you're basically a walking UXM.net. So <laughs> this has been such a revitalization, and I have to know, coming back to the present after this time travel, knowing that we were gearing up for Scott's mission, was there something different about this to you? Did it feel just like any other time the X-Men were hopping on the Blackbird? Or did this feel different? It was incredibly different. With the last issues of Powers and us seeing Moira dying in Apocalypse's timeline of him being the savior, it gears you up to think, is this the ultimate mission that we're about to see? Is this going to be what saves mutants? Because everything else, all the other lives that we've seen of Moira, mutants don't end up having very good time spans. So it just is making you wonder if this is the ultimate mission. The ultimate mission. And you know, I love phrasing it that way. There's some, beyond the fact that there have been some really beautiful variants. And like, I don't want to be that guy and like talk about like pretty covers for a minute. But oh my god, they're killing me. I have to keep buying all the variants. And... I love them so much, and some of the best ones have been these Through the Ages variants that have really taken my breath away. And the Through the Ages variant for House of X number 4 was Warren Worthington, and I found myself somehow so taken by it, not just because it's a beautiful cover, but even in an X-Man, we deride so hard on this show. You know, Angel gets the shortest end of our classic five stick, and frankly, he's in the bottom three as a rule for us. But his name, Angel, Archangel, Warren Worthington, this name carries caveat. This name has power. And when I saw he was in this mission as well, and then I heard Husk and Monet and Mystique, this was the first time I realized this story does not have a set team. Hickman isn't telling a story about a team of X-Men. He's telling a story about every X-Man, and it's through that breadth and that window into the story that I came to realize these are not one big story. This is actually Jonathan Hickman evolving the X-Men at hyperspeed. House of X number one is a complete idea. Powers of X number one, while probably less a complete idea, still gave me enough that I would have been fine with just that issue in that timeline, and then allowing him to jump around should this have been a more 
standard and expected run. I then felt like House of X number two, Moira X's life, the lives and deaths of Moira X, it expressed so much in a closed fashion. The two parts of Powers of Ten did the same for me. Jonah, we've been focusing on how the X-Men are this hyper-connected latticework of ideas, and these stories have been so segmented yet fused together is it incredibly different from reading Chris Claremont's era? What Chris writes, he likes to plant seeds of things he wants to write about in the future. He will make a note of a minor incident and then make a full-on arc about it, a la Proteus. But Jonathan Hickman is not really planting the seeds. He's kind of showing you the crops already grown. You don't have time to plant the seed if it's already grown and it's already a fully fleshed idea that he's thrusting upon you. And I think that's where the main difference lies. I really love thinking about it that way. Instead of setting up the groundwork, Hickman is introducing us to a world that is already different. We started this adventure six months to a year after the events of Uncanny 22, and the world was different already. In fact, that was what the point of House of X number one was the world's culture shock in regard to the emerging culture that is mutancy. House of X 3 and 4 finally put the X-Men back in the driver's seat of their own story. Now, it is a normal hallmark of Jonathan Hickman's stories to tell an expansive idea from the point of view of dozens of characters. He loves creating minor characters to have them intersect with the story, whether or not they're ultimately going to play a very big role. Now, in that regard, it's not that Hickman doesn't subscribe to Chekhov's gun, but I don't know how very important each one of the ambassadors from House of X are going to be later on down the line. I would just as soon never see them again. John Hickman finally tells the story that makes the X-Men the stars of the show, and the lineup of X-Men he chose was fucking extraordinary. I couldn't believe some of these characters on this team, on this mission, whether they were on the home side of it or the space side of it. Dylan, I know there was a bunch of faces you'd been dying to see there. How did it feel to finally see Hickman recognize the broader birth of the X-Franchise instead of just a narrow handful of mutants? Oh, it was so exciting to see Monet and Paige or M and Husk actually be on a mission with some heavy hitters like Cyclops and Jean and Wolverine. Just seeing that first lineup of the entire crew, or I mean, most of them are actually on the cover of the book for House of X3 as well. It's just really awesome to see multiple generations on one team. And then also throwing in Mystique. We, I mean, we've already seen her already, but it's it's just awesome to see the villain side as well. And I'm really glad you brought up Mystique because this did also give us a character that I know Jonah had been waiting to see with bated breath. Not only did he get his uh, wunderbar Kurt Wagner, but he also got his precious Emma Frost. And the Emma Frost sequence reminded us that Sabretooth played a hand in House of X number one. The only reason I need to bring this up is because, while many fans might not recognize it now, Sabretooth and Mystique had an on-again, off-again romance much in the same way Mystique and Wolverine did. However, Mystique and Wolverine did not have a child that ran for office at one point. While I'm pretty sure Mystique and Wolverine do have a child from the future, Raze? Mystique and Sabretooth have Graydon Creed, 
who played a handful of roles throughout the 80s and 90s in Marvel Comics. But they do represent sort of a dark mirror to the refocus on Scott and Jean. Okay, enough about Jean. I just can't stop talking about Jean. Jonah, this is your moment. Emma, Kurt, why this is everything a boy could ask for. Uh, Kurt gets everything he deserves in this book, and I am so happy for him. And Emma finally gets to, you know, not be on the short end of anything. I completely agree. I think that scene is everything I love about Emma. I maybe didn't understand the cuckoos suddenly calling her mom. Is that something I just missed in a previous run that they suddenly are all British and affectionately referring to her as mom? Because pretty sure that's new. I'm guessing he's just leaning into them being her children, but I don't I don't know why specifically mom. I think it's kind of like a altered ma'am, but I also think in this this timeline they've created a better rapport with her. So I'm really glad you brought up the timelines because one thing they have said is that the timeline hasn't changed. Things are just different now. The events of the X-Men have pretty much been the events of the X-Men. And if they're different, they're different in really fine ways that we're going to take a look at through more of Hickman's incredibly clever, disjointed storytelling. But I know that the timeline was something that we all got kind of stuck on. Kyle, was it a relief for you that in House of X3, Hickman finally confirmed some of our timeline ideas? Yes and no. I think 3 helped to clarify, but I think issue 4 kind of makes things a little more questionable. I do think issue four kind of shook the X-Men up in a way that uh, Senor Hickman better have some, some answers or some plans or something because that was, that was quite a space quake we just experienced. To get into the events of House of X 3 and 4, one of the things introduced in House of X number 1 is the Orchis Project. It is apparently like an orchard of super science groups coming together to be ready to stop an extinction-level threat to humanity at a moment's notice. We see S.H.I.E.L.D. working with S.W.O.R.D., working with Hydra, working with AIM. This is a very big and very hickmanly idea. They're out in space building a mother mold, which is a super sentinel space station that builds master molds, which of course in turn builds sentinels. Yeah, this is not good for the X-Men. So they decide to head to space to take care of this before it can come online. One of the rules that they state is that they will not be bringing any Krakoan flora with them. There is no benefit to bringing the magic of Krakoa with them if it could all be ruined by falling into the wrong hands. And this was just a fucking topsy-turvy, throw-me-upside-down-backward. Jonah, this had to be a very different X-Men than you were used to. The last new issues of X-Men you read were actually new X-Men, so almost 20 years ago. What was it like stepping back into the Blackbird and experiencing life as one of Homo Superior on this bizarre space adventure? What we've seen so far in this new dawn of X-Men is a severe and heavy focus on Charles and Moira with a little bit of Scott thrown in. No one's really taking the spotlight because it's really important that Charles and Moira succeed in their plan and they're the ones that are the driving force of everything. So going on a mission like a classic X-Men story was really a little bit, it was nice to go back to those roots of it. And I think that I agree with Dylan that this team is amazing and I will say this on air, Dylan and Nico I am gunning for your position and and your titles as biggest Monet fans because out of every character on that team, I think Monet made the biggest impact on it. Yes! 
<laughs> right? I was so excited, too. He's like, I'm going to fight you, and I want to be like, look, Monet has room for tons of worshippers. I loved that your precious Kurt, our precious Kurt, beloved brother of the podcast, Kurt, Kurt got some great screen time. He was out of control in, not out of control, but like out of control well written. I felt like Kurt fired on all cylinders. There's been so many questions about what that first scene in House of X number one meant. And, you know, that first few issues, we all were kind of like, I don't know, everybody's out of character. Maybe these are all, you know, pod X-Men. Maybe they're all just scrolls or something. But I'm really starting to feel like Hickman has command of the characters in a way that shines through at this point. That exchange between Scott and Xavier, where Scott's like, of course, I'm hesitant. I don't want to die. And this Xavier's like, no, that's you. That's always been you. Don't worry about it. Like, I really do feel like these are our X-Men final. And I do love that Monet had a profound impact on you, because I think she was meant to. Something that Hickman does well is he understands who needs dialogue and who doesn't. It did not escape my notice that Wolverine had barely any panel time in House of X number one. However, the panel time Wolverine gets in this issue, or this two issues, makes me so happy whether it's Scott referring to Logan as the bravest man he's ever known, or Logan and Kurt hanging together in space. I just, ugh, all my I things! Was, <laughs> I think it was the perfect amount of screen time for everyone who was either meant to be a focus or people who needed the spotlight for them, because talking with Dylan and Nico, I know that Monet is a character that doesn't have a popularity that I don't know why, because I think she's so fucking cool. But, like, I really wish, like, maybe Husk had a moment, because she's a character I don't know yet, and I haven't been introduced to yet. So it would have been nice to have everyone have, whether it be small, still a form of a moment that shows they're doing what they can, because having Husk and Warren killed off so early into the mission, while it's not the end of the world and it does make sense, I really wish that there could have been at least a little bit more of them. There's very little we can do to avoid the possibility that any of these X-Men may come back in some in some capacity. It felt like that would have been a really piss-poor way to say goodbye to Warren Worthington. Now, Kyle, I know that we've constantly talked about how the X-Men hyper-focus on mortality. We felt very much like even the threads of 20 issues later, in a recent episode we recorded, echoed sentiments of the Dark Phoenix saga and the loss of Jean. What was your take on the uh, bloodbath of this issue? <laughs> the X-Men head to the space station and seemingly are successful, but it, it comes at a great price you pretty much lose the entire team. It literally is a suicide mission for this team. And I don't know. It, I just feel it was shocking. It was shocking. And it, it was genuinely feels shocking. like something is off to me personally. I agree. There is an unrest about the X-Men. There is a sense of something's a little bit off. Now, Dylan, for your money and for my money, this was just such a great opportunity to see so many of these heroes come together. I know we had a moment where we kind of rejoiced at the fact that Monet and Jean kind of got some panel time, even if Monet's got a little bit of a, a little bit of a toot on her. When does she not have attitude? That's that's what makes her even more perfect. These two issues were awesome because of all the action and everything, but like we mentioned earlier with Scott saying that he was a little afraid of the mission, that seems a little weird to me because Scott knows exactly how he has always been. So for him to be slightly questioning himself, that seems a little off. Not to mention the fact in 
House of X4, there's the whole telepathic communication between Jean and Xavier. Why does Monet, who is not very strong with her telepathic abilities, have to help Jean telepathically talk to Xavier? That seems a little off for Jean as well. If I had to guess, it's probably something to do with the space range on it. While Jean is an incredible telepath, and she is even listed in the pages of House of X as an Omega-level telepath, I think it might be that perhaps Orchis has some sort of, you know, they would be smart to have some kind of psychic blockers. They do believe they are safe up there, so there must be some kind of protection. And I also imagine the strain of contacting Earth. I want to hop on that moment for a moment. Ha <laughs> ha! I want to jump into that scene for a moment because, Dylan, I'm so glad you brought that up. That anchor scene with Xavier and Storm. Now, first of all, I was so happy to finally see Storm have, you know, dialogue and not just fabulous boots walking around carrying a flower. I know that Jonah doesn't know who this character is, but they slightly mention a brand new character that was created last year for X-Men Red, and that's Trinary. It is amazing to see that Trinary is still around. I love her. It's really hard to launch a new X character and have them take hold. So anytime you can get a group of X-Men fans to even say, no, no, I remember that X-Man, because I'll be honest, I don't know that I can name every one of Bendis' Uncanny X-Men. I don't know that I can recall all of the kids that were walking the halls during uh, Nunzio and Weir's run on New X-Men. I don't know that I can remember all of the kids that were even on Young X-Men. Man, there have been way too many teen relaunches lately. So it could be really next to impossible to make something stick. Miles Morales, Spider-Gwen, these are really, really rare in the modern comic book market. So the fact that House of X and Powers of Ten are already capturing people's minds is so important. And I'm really glad that people are seeing characters that they connected with echoed and returned in the pages elsewhere. Speaking of those characters that we're happy and love to see in Powers and House of X, I'm going to go back to M for a moment since we talked about her being all sassy and telling Marvel Girl that she needed to try harder, which is going to be my favorite panel of comics ever. What about her transforming into penance? That's what I was getting to. Is that what we're doing? Yes. Is that what's finally happening? Oh my god, that was like everything I've ever wanted. What it, the fuck? It was oh my god. the best thing ever. It was amazing. It was but like the also, highlight of the book. It was. It was awesome to see that Monet got to have just as, pretty much almost just as much savage destruction times as Wolverine, but in the form of penance, which she has never been able to do. So once again, there's another mutant that's a little bit off. And I just want to interact with that. There's a lot going on, and I promise, 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 when we get to Generation X in the year 2029, (laughs) I will do an episode where all we do is explain how confusing Monet is. And the M-Twins, and M-Plate, and M-Plate. I love M-Plate. He is one of my favorite villains, and I would be shocked if Hickman didn't want to use him. I'm going to just point out again that my favorite thing is going back and listening to that first episode where Jonah and I can't stop howling at how much we love that Moira just jumps in the room and is like, my mutant power is this machine gun. I'm telling you, Moira from day one was a fucking badass. In our most recent episode that we talked about New Mutants, Karma has a machine gun at one point. I wanted to say that Karma very much enrolls into uh, machine gun Moira Patagard's school for foreigner gunslingers. <laughs> oh, oh, 
Oh my god. <laughs> Moira's School for Immigrant Gunslingers is like literally the greatest school of all time. Oh my god. <laughs> Fuck your Massachusetts Academy. <laughs> you can take Hogwarts and shove it up your ass. I don't have time for break bills. I'm going to Machine Gun Moira's School for Well-Armed Immigrants. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> oh man guys i i just i love this run i dramatically love this run and i find that we don't have the time to talk about the plot in great detail because we're so frequently talking about the symbolism or the ideology i know that one of the things we've carefully skirted is a lot of people's reaction to the x-men has been very political and people have come to feel that this version of the x-men is preaching a near fascist world now I do think there has to be more at play, so I'm glad we've kept the political discussion to pretty much a minimum, especially as we're only halfway through the story. It reminds me of any time the cliffhanger ending of something is deeply misleading. It's sort of like a cliffhanger, cliff bait. We'll call it cliff bait. Perfect. Anytime somebody throws you a cliff bait, it winds up making you feel foolish if you were angry about it for too long. <laughs> not everything winds up harmless. Let's not forget that there was the entire Captain America secret empire is a Nazi thing. But at its heart, I feel like Hickman is keeping every moment of this story baited breath, cliffhanger, edge of your seat action. I feel like every time I turn the page, he's rewriting the history of the X-Men in a way that I'm so happy with. I feel like this is the first time the X-Men are ready to evolve. I'm positive it's made it once before, but just in case it hasn't, there's a famous quote by Mark Wade early on in his Daredevil run, which for the record is one of the two best Daredevil runs of all time. He was asked what he's going to do that's different than the last several years of runs. And he said, well, since 1975, everyone's just done Shades of Frank Miller, including Frank Miller, as Miller would return to the title multiple times. With the exception of a brief run by a good friend of Mark Wade's, a guy by the name of Carl Kiesel, he described that everything in the entirety of Daredevil followed the emotional narrative set forward by Frank Miller's run on the title. Mark Wade's Daredevil was a marked difference in the emotional atmosphere of the story, and it gave us a breath of fresh air. The X-Men are meant to be about evolution. The X-Men are not meant to stay anywhere for too long. And when you take a look at the most classic era of the X-Men, Chris Claremont's, it's not hard to see what we're talking about. At no point did the lineup not change for six, seven issues at a time. And where we've found ourselves in an era of writing to the trade, which is for the sake of the industry, please don't get me wrong, we've come to lose sight of what makes the X-Men different, unique, brave, strong. In the regular feed of Uncanny X's for podcast, we're going to be coming up on God Loves Man Kills in the near future. God Loves Man Kills had power, it had atmosphere, but more than anything, I can't shake the back cover, that image in blood red that says Muty. I can't shake that. And I found myself moved to that extent for the first time in some time by the end of House of X number four. Now, again, trying not to get too political about it until we understand the scope, but I was affected by the no more several page spread in the back of the book. I would love to get your guys' response to that depiction of news as violence. To me, it was a way very similar to what I just said about Hickman. I feel like he was wanting to show everyone that in every generation of X-Men stories, 
there has been just moments of complete despair. And I feel like he wanted readers to feel that way or show that, yes, his book or his story right now seems very bleak for the X-Men, but that the X-Men have always evolved and made it through. So I feel like that's, to me, I feel like it wasn't trying to be too hard or down. To me, I think it was actually trying to show a little bit of hope. I love that because if there's no light in the darkness, it can be so difficult to remember what it is you're fighting for. Kyle, with those pages reminding us that mutants are hated and feared and the the X-Men must do what they must do to survive, did you feel like this tied back to the classic era of Claremont or did you feel this echoed a different era that you've read? I actually feel like it's a mirror image of the latest uncanny run where instead of everything being oh god this is horrible we're just gonna go out with a bang it's xavier saying that's it i don't want this to happen anymore we have to do something different so for your sake you feel like this is a continuation of an idea that they've recently put forward in a way that supports kind of like a fluid narrative i really i really like that perspective Now, Jonah, you are the newest of us to the X franchise, but of course, your opinion is no less Banff. And how did you feel stepping into hated and feared in such an intense way as a motif of the X-Men? The best way I can describe it is these issues had me on the edge of my seat probably for the entire time because I was really nervous and full of suspense of what's going to happen. And I don't think there's anything scarier than seeing Charles cry and repeat the phrase over, no more, no more. And I think this is the direction of what happens when people are feared and hated and eventually they snap and it kind of feels like Charles was at his breaking point and this last mission was the straw that broke the camel's back and we're going to see what it's like when Charles snaps. I'm curious to see just who will survive that and how ready this plan, whatever the hell Charles is up to, is how close it is to ready because one of the things that left me the most shaken in this story was on the space station when they decided that it was time to bring the mother mold online whether or not it would be sane yet that is just i mean beyond the fact that it's a recipe for disaster no matter what fucking sci-fi franchise you're goddamn reading that is specifically a recipe for disaster with the x-men dylan i can't stop thinking of evil robots plaguing the x-men i'm shocked danger hasn't shown up yet what were your thoughts when the mother mold came online well you know we still got a few more issues so maybe danger will show up and that would be amazing because i love her I love her. (laughs) The end of this issue, like you said, like them bringing the Master Mold online, whether it was ready or not. I mean, even Karima was like, uh, you might want to wait. It just kind of shows or goes more into Hickman's, you have no idea what's going to happen tone that these books have had. And it's confusing and weird, but also very intriguing and makes you not want to wait another week for the next part of the story. I very much agree. I have two sort of parting thoughts that struck me as I read this two or three times today. Something I noticed was that one of the scientists says to another that he wished they'd had children. And the first time I read it, I really couldn't figure out why that line was there. I just kept thinking, all right, humanizing moment, whatever. But the more I read it, and read it in terms of reading three and four, he's saying he had just wished he'd had an opportunity to have this moment that is so human, that so many people can do just by accident. And that's really all Xavier is fighting for. 
He's fighting for the chance to mutants to decide to have children, not to have to constantly run in fear. That's something that really painted a powerful contrast for me. The second thing I noticed is all of this focus on no more, no more. The last time I remember a mutant saying no more, the next word out of their mouth ended mutancy for some number of years? And I wonder what the significance is of the number of reused terms in Hickman's run. Whether it's reusing the term phalanx, which is an already hyper-ancient alien race in the pages of X-Men going back millennia, or it's the reappropriation of the term forge to refer to the forge where they're building things as opposed to the maker mutant, or now this, no more. Wanda once said no more mutants, and suddenly there were, well, no more mutants. Xavier simply says no more. I'm kind of fascinated to what comes next. So during this whole X to the 10th year, we don't see Moira at all. So what happened to her? And why isn't she affecting what's going on? We haven't seen Moira since Charles made the deal with Magneto. Moira has not poked her beautiful mutant head anywhere. I hadn't even considered that we hadn't seen her in the present time. I guess because Hickman's doing such a great job making me think about what's happened and what's going to happen. He's kept me from thinking too much about what's happening now. And... I feel like that just opened up so many doors. We're just over the halfway point in Jonathan Hickman's House and Powers 2 series that are one. And I just don't even know how to express how excited I am to see where it goes. Kyle, if you have one hope that we get to see before this series ends, what would it be now that we're at the halfway point? I want to see Destiny's prediction that there might be an 11th Moira life and that that Moira life leads us to the Dawn of X books. Man, that's uh, from your mouth to our Lord and Savior Robert Downey Jr.'s ears. I absolutely love that. Dylan, you've been an X-Man fan as long as you've been able to tie your shoes, if I do remember the story. So, I have to know, halfway through this adventure, what are you hoping to see? I am hoping to see probably what every X-Man fan and reader has always hoped for, and that is hope itself. And I'm not talking about that boring Hope Summers. I am talking about actual, oh, like, You leave Hope, hope Summers alone! You... <laughs> I was waiting for you to get indignant um, about Cable's daughter. <laughs> you watch yourself. Except she's not his daughter. She's just some weird random messiah that ended up not really being one. Anyway, I hope that Hickman can get the X-Men to a point where the books aren't always so gloom and doom for their species and more the fact of they are here to also be superheroes like the Avengers. Oh, God, right. Man, you guys are saying so many good things. Ugh! Jonah, you have had so much, you've brought so much excitement and life to this discussion by bringing up a really great set of points from a new fan's perspective. Without having an overwhelming amount of history associated with the X-Men, you represent 
the average reader Hickman is hoping to bring in, somebody with a functional knowledge of the X-Men who perhaps has never been a regular reader before. What are you hoping to gain from the final five issues of the two series that are one? Well, personally, I would like if more characters, whether they be new or unpopular or not utilized often, get more screen time like they did here. But what I would most hope out of the final five issues is a very strong finish. I think that when it comes to writing and it comes to certain medias similar to comic books people can have amazing starts they can have maybe a little bit of shaky starts but really get going in the middle but i feel like oftentimes the most important part is the finish how are you going to end everything? How are you wrapping everything up? And I would really hope that Hickman's ideas are able to translate into an ending that is satisfying to everyone. That's what I really want, is that there is an ending that no one can say, eh, that was kind of weak. That would be the real minority. Yeah, you you guys are all looking for great... Oh, man. Oh, I love this. Kyle's looking to the future of X-Men as another chance for evolution and rebirth. Jonah's looking to it as a chance to make fans happy. Dylan just wants to see the X-Men get to be heroes. Guys, let me tell you my idea. I think they should have all survived, right? And they get themselves inside a space shuttle, right? And they start piloting the space shuttle toward Earth. But they get into a cosmic radiation storm. And only Jean is powerful enough to hold the ship together. Until we return to Grey Malkin Lane, Kyle, where can everybody find you on the internet? You guys may find me plotting our secret project. You could also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. Absolutely. I'm so excited. It's The secret project actually will be taking Thursday's slot from Powerhouse when, when House and Powers, the two series that are one, ends. So I'm very excited and I can't wait to have you back on for more of this. And to start the next phase of our literary analysis, Dylan, oh great Windy City mutant Windy Warpath. Not quite. I'm going to cut that. That was terrible. Man, I just want to just, I was wish, man, man, I just want like. Everyone thinks I live in Chicago. I don't. Well, because no one on the coasts understands anything in the middle. No one. <laughs> None of us. It was us. really great when None. I texted Dylan, hey, I'm in your city's airport. And he's like, Jonah, I don't actually live in Chicago. I'm three hours south. And I was like, oh. And Dylan was like, everyone only knows one town in Illinois. It's Chicago. It's okay. <laughs> you know what? I almost said, I know a second one. And I almost said Detroit. So where can everybody find you on the internet? <laughs> Everyone can find me in my Facebook group telling all the Marvel Girl fans that they need to try harder. That group is called House of X. Or you can find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan. That's Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. And don't scoff at me. I mean, I'll try. (laughs) Try harder. We'll just move. We're going to... Oh! Oh my god, I walked into that so hard. Oh my god, it's going to leave a bruise. Chona, where can everybody find you on the internet? Floating around in space with the mother mold. You could actually find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. Nico, where can everybody find you? As always, you guys can find me all over this amazing network on shows like Now and Again, which I do with my childhood best friend Chris Podcasts, or making music for shows like Too Fast, Too Forever for the main man who runs this thing, Joey. You guys can check me out on my show, HTML with my husband, Kevo, or on the other amazing feeds of this show. So keep an ear out and keep an eye out, and thanks for listening.
please don't forget to check out my amazing comment about super-inclusive superheroes over at KidRiotComics.com. And you can find me with my shirt off all the time on Instagram at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. I swear to God, the longest part of the show is saying where you can find me. But until we return to figure out exactly how there's any book left now that everyone's dead, we'll see ya. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> No more.